Today, our study leader, Dave Wurtson, takes us into Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 to 18, where we discover that John the Apostle predicted that there will be many false messiahs who strut across the stage of history. This lust for power will lead to a final Antichrist who will deceive millions during the tribulation period. This political leader will also have a religious spokesman, the false Christ. Let's join Dave as he introduces our study talking about this smooth-talking spiritual guide who sounds good but is full of lies. Dave? What the Bible describes to us is as we go out into life, like some of you are going to move and you're going to go to other cities and you have to look for other church families and, and some of you are going to go away to school and you're going to be in other localities and you're going to be evaluating what about the spiritual thing. You might get in a Sunday school class and the teacher of the Sunday school class has a PhD in archaeology, has a PhD in comparative religions, and as you begin to get into the Sunday school class, I mean, good night, this teacher tells you all about Qumran, they tell you all about um, Herod Antipas, they tell you all about the Caiaphas, the high priest, that they just discovered his bones in the city of Jerusalem. In other words, as this teacher teaches you, it just feels like you're living right back there in the first century. I mean, this teacher begins one Sunday during your Sunday school class to talk to you about Jesus coming to Bethany. And he's able to describe where Bethany is and, and what the buildings were like, what the houses were like in those days. And, and you just feel like you're just sitting there with Mary and Martha as Jesus, this new upstart rabbi from northern Galilee that's now down in Judea, talking to people. And as he sits with Mary, this teacher just describes to you the incredible progressiveness of this first century rabbi that was way ahead of his time as he related to women. And he shows you how, in contrast to that, the average first century rabbi wouldn't have anything to do with you as women. And so that can make you really feel good. Maybe you've been in, as a woman, you've been in a church family that's kind of degraded you and you thought you were second class and you just really gravitate. Gee, this really wasn't like that. And that would be a really neat thing. Another lesson, you go through the Sermon on the Mount and as you think about the essence of the, of the lesson, the teacher just goes right through these incredible ethical lessons and teachings about turning the other cheek and going another mile with somebody. And he explains, you know, what that was all about and how the Roman soldiers could command that a Jew that was under their subjugation, they could go with them one mile. And what Jesus was saying is that rather than, than rebelling against that authority, you would overwhelm that, that abusiveness with goodness. And instead of letting that Roman soldier buckle you down and make you do something with love, you would just do twice as much as they were even asking you to do, and by doing so, you would blow right through that authoritarianism. You'd be awestruck. Man, that's great teaching. I never really understood what that was about. One study, you raise your hand and say, you know, as I've been reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I noticed at the end of the Gospels, there's a lot of talk about Jesus dying on the cross. What about that? And the teacher says, well, one of the things you need to realize, whether it's Socrates or whether it's Gandhi or, you know, whether it's Jesus, anytime you've got a, a really radical ethical philosopher and they're introducing new teaching and stuff, usually they're going to have to give their life. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus was a great moral teacher. He was like one of these Greek philosophers that was traveling in the first century from city to city. And he just got to follow the authorities. And he shows us what happens. And he was martyred. 
And that's all that he says about the death of Christ. You, and then you come to a real clincher. It comes to Easter. And it's time for to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. So you ask him in class. I mean, as I read the end of the book of Luke, it just seems to me, and especially John, it's like John was right there and he runs to the tomb and he sees the grave clothes there and, it, and he talks about the body not being there. You know, what about this resurrection of Jesus? That seems to be a really important thing. And your PhD teacher says what, what the resurrection of Jesus means to me is that the disciples, those 11 disciples, excluding Judas, that rebelled and betrayed his Lord, but the 11 disciples had heard the most astounding teaching that the world had ever heard. They heard this incredible insight into the body of Christ. They heard about this incredible philosophical teaching about morality. And what happened is that as they saw Jesus crucified, and then they began to think about it, they began to talk about it, then it just ignited in their life. It just exploded inside their personalities. And what happened is the ideas of Jesus came alive for them. It's kind of like I've got a friend that lost a loved one and, and they were going through all kinds of grief, but after they grieved about a two months, suddenly they realized that their loved one was still with them because all the ideas that they had taught to me during the years were still present inside of me. And so you say, well, man, you know, that's what the resurrection of Jesus was. It was like the resurrection of Jesus' ideas. What I've just been describing to you is something that happens in churches across our land. You're going to be exposed to teaching like that. That is a false Christ. That's not what the New Testament really says about Jesus. The New Testament says that Jesus was a great rabbi, but he was far more than a rabbi. He was God come in the flesh. The Bible does teach that the Sermon on the Mount is great ethics, but it's far more than great ethics. It's the constitution of the great king. And that constitution can only be lived out when you let the great king to come and live inside of you. Jesus did die in some ways as a martyr, but he died far more than just a martyr. He was the one who objectively paid the penalty for our sin. In other words, one day, every single one of you in this room, myself included, we're going to stand before Jesus as the judge of all the universe, because it says in the book of Acts that all of judgment has been turned over to the Son. And if you have received that Son into your life, then the ultimate judge of the universe will never judge you. He will accept you as his child. He will reward you at the great review stand for believers, but you'll never face his condemnation because your sins were objectively paid for at the cross. That happened in history. If you were there 2,000 years ago in approximately 33 AD, you would have actually seen a real man, a real savior that died a real death for you. And also on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And if you were there you, with the disciples in the upper room, you would have witnessed the real savior. It wasn't just the birth of an idea. It wasn't just the continuation of illumination. It was an incredible, objective conquering of death. And what I want you to understand as we move into the, into the book of Revelation, the closing chapter of the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is exploding those kind of realities in our life. Because you're going to be exposed as time goes on to false Christ. Jesus said in the book of Mark and in the book of Matthew, in the last days there will be false prophets that go out. He talked about that there will be uh, wolves that go out in sheep's clothing. What is he talking about? He's saying that down through church history that there would not only be an attack from without, 
that there would not only be antichrists that will be political leaders like a Hitler and, and like, some, like, like Stalin and like Lenin. There will not only be these political leaders down through time ultimately culminating in a final antichrist who will grab the world during that seven-year period before Christ comes back. There will not only be great political leaders that grab an anti-God platform, but there's also going to be a false prophet. There will be false prophets down through time. There's going to ultimately come this ultimate false prophet who be, is, works hard to get all of the world to unite spiritually under this great leader. If you turn to Revelation chapter 13, we're exposed to these ideas that I've been sharing with you. And what I'm trying to do is to get your mind working so that you will understand that, yes, people are going to face this seduction, this counterfeit Christianity during the tribulation period. But we're facing the seeds of that now. In your own life, at school this week, and as you go out into your society, as you talk with friends, you'll be exposed to these ideas. And I want to teach you, what are the characteristics of a false Christ, of a false prophet? Because what's happening in Revelation chapter 13 is John is portraying for us the counterfeit of God's holy trinity. In the book of Revelation chapter 1, we're introduced to God the Father... We were introduced to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, the seven spirit, the perfect spirit of God that goes forth into all the world. In Revelation chapter 13, we're introduced to the unholy trinity. The dragon's been thrown out of heaven, and he is the counterpart of God the Father. He generates an antichrist, this great political western leader that begins to bring all the world under one world government. Now we're introduced in chapter 13... Verse 11, to another beast that comes out of the land. It's even possible that when it says to the land, it might even be the land, the holy land. It's possible that this will be a, a Jewish individual that rises up as a false messiah. It's interesting, even when I study Jewish literature, one of the dominant beliefs about messianic views is that the Jews believe today that there's going to be a great political messiah. There's also going to be a great religious messiah. And it's unbelievable to me, it almost matches exactly what, Dan, what John, the apostle, warned against. Because in the first part of this chapter, we were warned about a great political leader that will promise peace and earth, goodwill towards men through his own ingenuity, his own humanity, his own organization, his own strength. Now we have what all totalitarian dictators realize. If you're going to get people's devotion, if you're going to get to their hearts, you've got to get their spiritual juices flowing. You've got to get their spiritual devotions and commitments really moving. And that's what this false prophet does. He says, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. The very first thing I want you to know about false Christ is they look like Christ, but they speak the words of the devil. The very first thing John says about this ultimate false prophet is that he's going to look like a lamb. In the book of Revelation, we were faced in chapter 5 with the wounded lamb that stood as the Lord of heaven and earth, as the one that could take the scroll of destiny. Now John is introducing us to a false prophet who looks like that lamb. One of the things you need to realize is you face spiritual seduction. The seduction is not just going to be from without. Like, it's not just going to be in a, in a philosophy class in a big university, a big secular university. It's very possible you'll face seduction right within a church. 
It'll happen right within the flow of church life. That's what happened in the first century. The seven churches that we looked at in Revelation 2 and 3 were already having false teachers that arose within them that were telling them, hey, you don't need to worry about this worship of the emperor. You can go ahead and give in to the worship of the emperor and go ahead and get involved in the trade guilds and go ahead and get involved in the immoral activities because your body is going to be transformed anyway and God will do away with his first body and give you a new one. What are you all worried about, this ethics and stuff? You're living in a heavenly realm. You don't need to worry about all those old-timey ethics. That's the way teachers were speaking way back in the first century. Right within Christendom today, those same voices, and you'll be exposed to them, are saying, you don't need to worry about what Jesus said about right and about wrong and about his spirit working within you to make you a new person so that you're able to fulfill the heartbeat of the Ten Commandments from within you. No. Man, you're beyond all that. And you'll have false Christ. That's what this false teacher is doing. He looks like Christ, but his words are the words of the devil. What you've got to understand if you're going to be aware of the seduction of the evil one is false Christ will appear to look like Christ. But if their words are not the words of Christ, they're the words of a demon, of the evil one. I just was listening yesterday to a guy that had just been in a seminar with the leading scholar in the world, the leading evangelical scholar in the world in Islamic studies. This man has lived for 40 years, has an incredible love for Islamic people and wants to reach him for Christ. But he said some really insightful things. He said, you need to understand that in the founding of Islam, that Muhammad, when he had his vision, he didn't receive his vision from Allah. He received his vision from an angel, from a jinn. In fact, when Muhammad came back after receiving his vision, he told his wife that he thought it was a vision of a demon, that a demon had given him that vision. And it wasn't until several months went by that his wife convinced him, no, it wasn't a demon, it was a voice from heaven. You've heard the voice of God himself. And what this Islamic scholar was showing is that in the founding, in this revelation, which is one of the great, great counterpoints, and I'm not talking about cultural Islam versus cultural Christianity or cultural Judaism, which is so much a part of the pluralism we live in. What I want you to understand is that in the spiritual area, that Islam is teaching you things that are radically different from what this book, the scripture, reveals. And you're going to have to decide, you know, where do I believe truth lies? And what this Islamic teacher was showing is that there was that seduction, there was that counterfeit right in the founding of Islam. And he was talking about how we need to really know our Bibles and how we need to really care for Islamic people. And and the only way to conquer that Islamic curtain is by penetrating it with the truth, with the good news about the true Christ. And he even said that if you're going to be willing to do that, you need to also realize it could very easily cost your life. Because in many countries around the world, they don't have the kind of freedoms that we enjoy here in the United States of America. If you are under Islamic rule, the government and the spiritual forces are all united together in one single unity. And for you to reject the beliefs of Islam means you're a traitor to your country and you're guilty of high treason. That's the way it works. Now, where did that kind of thinking come from? That's what John was combating in the book of Revelation. 
That's what's going to happen at the end of time. That's what happens whenever dictatorial, totalitarian rulers begin to take over. You see, if you're going to control people, you can't just control their taxes. You see, if you're going to be a totalitarian dictator, you can't just control people's pocketbooks. You've got to control their devotions, their heart. Augustus Caesar realized that. And so in John's day, for example, there was a whole group of people throughout the province of Asia that were responsible to get people to swear allegiance to the Roman emperor. And it started way back with Augustus, and by the time Domitian came in the 90s AD, this kind of philosophy was very present. And these pagan priests would unite all the people, for example, in Midlothian, and we'd bring it up in our modern culture, and we would all gather, and we would swear allegiance to the great Roman divine emperor. And that would be the basis by which we could conduct business during the coming year. That introduces us to the second idea. First of all, you have this false counterfeit Christ that looks like Christ, but the words are really the words of a demon. Second of all, you have abuse of authority. Look what it says. It says in verse 12, he exercised all the authority of the first beast on, on his behalf. And he made all the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. What that is is abusive authority. This is a picture, it's really kind of a counterfeit picture. In the Old Testament, a prophet would stand in the presence of God. For example, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, has a vision of God. He'd stand in the presence of Yahweh, and Yahweh commissions him. It's kind of like a great king. For example, in the Persian court, a king like Ahasuerus would have a cupbearer who would be right at his side, and the cupbearer would stand in the presence of the great king, and then he would affect the king's commands. This false prophet is presented as standing in the presence of Antichrist, and then he, he does the bidding, he executes the commands of Antichrist by winning the spiritual allegiance of all the people around them, and he demands that they worship the beast. It's abusive authority. Whenever in your own life, whenever in your own life, when you're part of a religious group that says you can't read the Bible for yourself, you can't ask questions for yourself and get good, honest answers. You need to just listen to what your teachers tell you. You are in a cultic environment that's abusive. All false teaching is built on that. You see, Jesus, the real Jesus, will never abuse you. The real Jesus, for example, is the only one that could force you to do whatever he wanted to do because he's the ultimate power in the universe. What does he do to you? If you think back over the way Jesus has dealt in your life, he told you his story, he told you what he did for you, he told you how he rose again from the dead, and then you had to make a decision. Like at a Billy Graham crusade, we sing, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. But nobody goes with a sword from one chair to the next and says, you've got to go forward to receive Jesus. Why? Because the only way you can receive Jesus is you've got to do it of your own accord. Because the ultimate God of the universe has just designed for you to be free. For you to be a responsible moral agent. For you to have to make a decision about him. And there's a great mystery in that. But in almost every page of scripture, you have the ultimate sovereign king of the universe giving man a choice. And challenging man to respond to him. And challenging man to receive him. Abusive religious authority will take away that choice. And you know, there's an amazing thing about you and me. 
There's a little part of us that wants to stay a little tiny kid forever. We like people telling us what to do. We like people doing our thinking for us. We like people taking responsibility. We want to be able to give that responsibility away. And every little bit of responsibility that you give away, you lose your freedom. And the true God of the universe, the true Lord Jesus Christ, will never coerce you and will never force you. So whenever you're in a church context, whenever you're in a religious context where you have authoritarian leaders that are seeking to manipulate you and con you and force you to do things, then you're in an abusive, false Messiah situation. And only the Word of God can give you that discernment. The third area, look what else it says about this Antichrist. It says that he causes all the world to worship this beast whose fatal wound had been healed and he performed great miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. The first thing is the false Christ looks like Christ but he speaks the word of a demon. Second of all, He uses abusive authority. The third thing is, miracles are not enough to authenticate truth. I want all of you to hear that. Miracles are not enough to authenticate truth. What this Antichrist is going to do, if I kind of picture a scenario, like if we were in the middle of the tribulation now, and I don't believe that the church will go through the tribulation, but let's suppose that we were in the tribulation, it would be like gathering together at Texas Stadium. And we're all gathered together at Texas Stadium because there's this great ultimate Western leader who's created the ultimate United Nations and no one speaks better than this and, and no one has ideas of peace and earth, goodwill towards men like this individual and we all gather together in this stadium and his representative, his media personality, the one that's in charge of getting the propaganda out, gets up and starts to hype up this crowd. I mean, there's a big music group that comes before, and then this real great communicator comes up. And before he introduces this ultimate great Western leader, this prophet begins to declare that I want to demonstrate to you the power. This individual used to be dead. Somebody tried to assassinate him, which is possible maybe what kind of what happened, but he came back to life again. And he's someone that can tell us the way to ultimate truth and I'm going to prove that it's true because man I'm going to bring fire from heaven and he points his finger to the top of open Texas City and wham a bolt of lightning comes down and just just fills a big hole just burns a big hole right in the middle of Texas Stadium now if you were sitting in that audience and you saw that for most Americans that would be it because you saw a miracle you saw power if you saw a miracle if you saw power then it's got to be true What I want you to realize, in the word of God, miracle and power is not enough. When Moses stood before the Pharaoh and he threw his rod down and it turned to a snake, and I believe it literally happened. I have missionary friends that have been in context where weirder things than that. My roommate in high school went to things in Haiti where there would be old women that were 85 years of age that would run twice the distance of marathons when they were possessed by demons. He saw really weird stuff, and he would scare the daylight out of us late at night, you know, telling us these stories when we couldn't sleep. Satan has great power. The enemy has great power. And you've got to realize that sign and wonder, doing great miraculous deeds, is not enough. In fact, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 13, God told the Old Testament children of Israel that I'm going to allow false teachers to come among your midst. And I'm going to even allow them 
to do some incredibly powerful things because I'm going to test you to see whether you'll really obey my covenant with Moses. Whether you'll believe what you learned at Mount Sinai. Whether or not you'll understand that that's the truth. The same thing happens under the new covenant. In your own life, as you go through your Christian life, the only way that you can stay free from the seduction, free from the counterfeit, is you need to be in this book every single day. You shouldn't even listen to just what I say. Don't listen to what I say on Sunday morning without checking it out for yourself. Don't just take what I say about revelation. You need to read it for yourself. And you've got an incredible privilege. Most of you have this precious revelation from God sitting in your lap. And I want to motivate you, if you don't spend time every single day in this book, then you're going to leave yourself wide open for false teaching. And it will make a big difference in your life because it will mean that your family will be built on lies. It will mean eventually that your family doesn't do what God really has planned for it and the love that he wants to give you. Things go haywire when you don't follow the truth. And some of you are going to be exposed to situations where you see great wonders, great miracles, and it's going to be united with false teaching, but you're just going to believe the miracle because you're American. Man, if I see it happen before my eyes, then it's got to be true. And what I want you to just get firmly in your life is, if it doesn't fit in with this book, if it's not what my Jesus that's revealed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I know what Jesus is like because I've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm growing in my understanding, and I've read the book of Romans, and I've read the book of Philippians, and man, I'm really getting in. I know the biblical Jesus. If you have that kind of insight into the Word of God, then you'll be protected. If you don't, you're going to be exposed to some lie, some counterfeit. You're going to see some great power demonstration. And you're going to start to find yourself worshiping a false Christ, worshiping an idol. And that's the third thing here. He says this false prophet demands a false worship. Look what it says in verse 14. Because of his signs of wonders, the power due on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image and honor the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. In other words, he, he orders an image made of the Antichrist and it's set up. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark in his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. What in the world is he talking about here? This is a picture. It's built, built very much upon what Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to be the whole image. I mean, really, it's Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to be the entire image. Daniel chapter 2, the Lord gave him a dream, said, no, you're only the head of gold. But in Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar decides, no, I'm going to be the whole kit and caboodle and invites thousands of people from all over the world to come and sets up a big image of himself on the plains of Dur. And everybody's supposed to bow down. Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC, with his general sending him to Jerusalem, did exactly the same thing. He pictured himself as the god Zeus and he set himself up in the Holy of Holies and demanded the Israelite people worship him. The book of Daniel said that there's going to come an ultimate antichrist who's going to repeat the same kind of a thing. Now, to be honest with you, just to play the devil's advocate, there's a part of me that says, you know, no one would buy that. No one's going to do that. 
I mean, who would ever worship that kind of thing? Who would have worshipped like a, an island? It's said in this picture, you know, they're going to do some kind of a trick or something where this image is going to be able to speak and, you know, maybe even give prophecies or things like that. It's going to be some kind of a weird ventriloquism or stuff. You know, maybe that would work in the first century, but how would it ever work now? You know, when I was a little boy, the communist regime was really strong in Russia. And my mom and dad used to make trips to Russia. It used to scare me to death because I was afraid they weren't going to come back. And I remember praying, oh, dear Lord, keep them safe. But when they would come back from those trips to Russia, one of the things they would tell me about is that the churches in Russia had been closed down. Most of them were turned into museums. They would go through these beautiful Russian churches and they would... Uh, you know, they'd be all just shut down. Just you, they would be shown, you know, just like you would go through the Museum of Natural History. They would talk about this used to be what our country worshipped. But as my mom and dad would be there in Red Square, there would be lines. There would be thousands upon thousands of people that would be lined up. You know what they were lined up to do? They were lined up to go by the tomb of Lenin. My mom and dad actually did that. You would go by the tomb of Lenin. The tomb of Lenin was a glass case. Some of you have seen pictures of it with the entombed body of Lenin inside this case. Say, Dave, what's going on there? Worship. Religion. You see, people are so hungry. Their spiritual void, their spiritual power of of, of the way that we're created, we got to worship something. So what communism did when it enthroned the state as king and as lord and as the dominant force, you've got to create something that replaces the church, something that replaces religion. And what you do is you produce the veneration of your founding leaders. So like all over Russia, wherever you went, you'd have a statue of Karl Marx. And it would say, it would say on the statue, Marx's words will last forever because they are true. Marx's words will last forever because they were true. Now, doesn't that sound like a parody of something you've heard? You know, where Jesus says, my words are true, and my words last forever, and my words are the source of life. In other words, how many of you have some Bible verses on, up on your walls of your home? Anybody have that? Sure. You know, in our buildings, you know, we have big fights about whether we can put the Ten Commandments up, up on the walls of, of our buildings. Well, that is describing what a culture venerates, what they honor. And what they did in communism, they would have the words, like you would have up on a building all these slogans from the writings of Karl Marx and all these words of Lenin. They'd be right up there all over the Soviet Union. What John's describing here, right here in the book of Revelation, you say, man, that'll never happen. You live in a world where stuff very similar than that will happen. Only in this case, there's not going to be some case with a mummy decaying before your eyes in front of it, this is going to be like a real live image of some kind that incredibly seductive is even able to speak. And people's hearts are going to be so hollow. They're going to be so void of truth. They're going to worship this false Christ, this false worship. We close the text. It says that his number, it says here, probably one of the most debated verses in all of the book of Revelation. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it's a man's number. His number is 666. And this is the mark that's going to be in the right here on the forehead. What about this mark and stuff? Well, in the Old Testament Judaism, the Lord says, let my word be in your mind continually. Let it be in your hands. 
Let it be that when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed, and the Lord was speaking symbolically saying that the word of God needs to control every part of your life. Well, the Jewish leaders would put a phylactery, like if you were in the first century, a rabbi like Nicodemus would have a phylactery on his forehead, and it would have a portion of God's holy law, maybe the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, right there, there on his forehead. He would also have a thing tied on his wrist. So they would literally do that. What he would be saying is, I'm marked... My entire life, my thinking and all that I do with my hands is marked by the law of Moses. We read in Revelation chapter 7 that when God marks the 144,000, that they're sealed with the name of Jesus. They're sealed with the possession of Jesus. And then very next verses in chapter 14, it talks about this 144,000 who have now been exalted to heaven. And it talks about them being marked for Jesus. What John the Apostle is doing is saying that there's going to be two groups of people. There's one that are marked by Jesus. In other words, their life is devoted to Jesus. There's talk in the the early church, in the early persecutions, there were believers that were marked with a towel, which is the letter T, which was a sign of the cross. It was their mark that they were followers of Christ. A lot of you have the fish on your cars. And some college students I was with yesterday, one of the guys was saying, I've got a fish on my car, and everywhere I go, it makes me aware that I need to be sure that I drive carefully. And because I really get upset because I make mistakes sometimes, and, and I'm going I'm to abuse the, the honor that Jesus is due. And somebody else in the car says, well, maybe all of us should put a fish on our cars so that we all have to drive honoring the Lord, which might not be a bad idea. But it gives us that idea of how there's a sign that marks somebody as being possessed and owned by somebody, by Jesus. John is telling that there's, in contrast to that, these are marked and owned by the Antichrist and by his false prophet, and they're devoted to this false worship. And that's all united with the economy. You see, what you need to understand about a totalitarian state is a totalitarian state unites the political realm, the religious realm, and the economic realm and gets it all under one unified whole. And then you've got total control of people. That's what's going to happen during the tribulation period. There's parts of the world, for example, like I mentioned Islam a little bit earlier. If you lived in an Islamic culture... The political realm and the religious realm and the economic realm is totally united. If you're not a member of that Islamic faith, then you're outside the orbit. You don't have the right mark. Some of you say, well, this never happened. Remember the Jews, what what Hitler did to the Jews? Remember in the Warsaw Ghetto when he made them start wearing a yellow star throughout Nazism? And they, if they had to wear that, not that yellow star, and then he began to exclude them economically, eventually they were all herded in ghetto. You see, what we read in the book of Revelation has already been enacted in smaller scenarios. So if ever there was a people on planet Earth that should say, John knows what he's talking about. John's really telling us, man, we need to focus and be marked by Jesus. And then he says this, the number of Antichrist is the number 666. You say, well, does that mean that everyone's going to have stamps on their foreheads? Kind of like when you go to Six Flags, like a stamp here on your arm so you can get back in. You're going to be marked with a 666. I don't know. In fact, there's been all kinds of explanations. You see, like the name of 666, they, they've taken Nero, for example. There was a big myth in the first century that Nero didn't really die, that he was living out in Parthia somewhere, and he's going to ride his horse back into Rome with thousands of thousands of Parthians, and we're going to rebuild the Roman Empire and retake it and conquer the present emperor. That was a big belief. And so they've shown that if you take the name Nero and Caesar and combine them together, change it into Hebrew, 
because that, that letter will come out to equal the number 666. The problem with it is all the way through the book of John, he primarily uses Greek, although there is some, uh, some Hebrew or Aramaic, and so that's really not, it doesn't really fit. There's another really ingenious thing that takes the name of Domitian. The name Domitian, he was the ruling emperor in 95 AD or so when John wrote this book. If you gather all the inscriptions and all the titles of honor that Domitian give himself on all of his coins, combine them all together and then take the first letter of every one of those titles. Like he would call himself the divine one and he would call himself the absolute Lord. All these different names. If you take the first letter, one of the New Testament scholars has figured out that it all adds up to 666. And so John was saying that Domitian was Antichrist. The problem with all that is, is if we know the name, then it's really easy to figure out how it adds up to 666. But when you just have 666, you can almost make the 666 equal a million different names. It's really hard to be specific, and that's why scholars have really debated it. But I think that probably what's gotten me more into the heart of what I think John is saying, and the way that John himself really uses numbers in the book, if you think through the book, in the book of John, seven is the number of God. For example, in chapter 1, you have the sevenfold spirit, the seven spirits of God. It's the perfect spirit of God that goes forth into all the world. God's sealed book has how many seals? Seven seals. And only the Son of God can open the sevenfold book, the seven sealed book, the perfect declaration of what history is going to be. You have the seven trumpet judgments, the seven bold judgments, which complete the wrath of God. So seven is the number of God. Seven was a day when he took a break from his creative process. It represents the eternal rest of God. There's an interesting thing in what's called the Sibylline Oracles, which came a little bit after the writing of the New Testament. But in the Sibylline Oracles, it takes the name of Jesus, and it shows that the numerical values of the name of Jesus is an eight, an eight, and eight. 888 is the, what we call gematria, which is this idea where letters equal numbers. And what we're just saying is that in the, both Greek and Hebrew cultures, they would communicate their numbers not just with numerals like we do, but they would use letters. And so the name Jesus equals an eight, an eight, an eight. What John is telling us is that we've got this unholy trinity of the evil one. You have Satan the dragon... You have Antichrist, the political henchman, and then you have his false prophet, which is his media representative, his propaganda man. They are an unholy trinity. But when you add them all together, they fall one short. They're just a six. They're just a six. They're just a six. Because in the word of God, six is the number of man. Six days, God created the man the sixth day. Nebuchadnezzar's image is 60 cubits high, six cubits wide. Six is the number of a man. And what John is telling us is that when you add, this is the ultimate thing that Satan can do. It adds up just to a six and a six and a six. I think if John the Apostle were here today, he says, what I'm trying to challenge you to do, my brothers and sisters, I want you to worship the one who doesn't fall one short. I want you to worship the triune God. I want you to worship Jesus who fleshes God their Father out invisible form. I want you to only bow before an eight, an eight, an eight, who's one beyond perfection. It's John's way of saying he's the ultimate one. He's the Lamb of God that was really shed for you. What have we learned today? As you go out into your life, in this spiritual thing, in this spiritual world that we live in, there's going to be those that teach the biblical Jesus 
who are going to tell you about a Jesus that really lived, that really died, that really rose again, that can really save you. And there's going to be those that join together in that faith and really build their life upon him. You're going to be exposed to a lot of other people that say man can figure it out and we have all different teachers that come along to teach us kind of the way to get there. And Jesus was just one of those ways. And you're going to have to decide what I'm going to believe. And what I want to challenge you, the book of Revelation is telling us, don't ever fall deceived to a 666. Man's not going to be enough. You need the revelation of God given through his son, recorded in his precious book, and you need to build your entire life up on it. So let's pray. Father, I'd ask you that we would realize that you're the only one that deserves our allegiance. You're the only one that deserves our worship. We'd ask you, Lord, that you would powerfully work by your spirit to use what we've learned today about this ultimate false prophet is going to come. We pray that as we see that the ultimate trick that Satan's going to play, and as that lie is exposed, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would use what we've learned from Revelation 13 to expose the lies that will seek to seduce us away from the truth in our lives this week. And all Lord Jesus, I would pray that you would help us to worship before the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect triunity of 888, and help us to forever reject deep inside of our personality the deity of man, that man can solve all of its problems, that man doesn't need you. Lord, help us to be ever protected against the 666. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.